question as we read God's Word. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew is perfect for the It's Complicated series because Matthew was a guy that you would not have chosen for your team, but Jesus did. Uh, Matthew was someone who uh, was an individual who cheated his own people. He was not a great patriot. There was plenty of reasons not to pick Matthew, um, and yet Jesus said, I want him. I want him for our team. And I'm so glad that Jesus did that because Matthew recorded things that took place and what Jesus did and said that are so informative to us today. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22 in, in a passage that honestly is so common, it can be easily looked at as white noise to you and me. This is a passage where this is right when, when all the religious leaders like the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to trick Jesus. And they're both on the same page of like wanting to get Jesus. But that's weird because these guys don't agree with each other on just about anything. They don't, they're like political opposites. It's like if Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi were on the same team because they had a common enemy, in this situation, a common enemy would be Jesus. And Jesus was to both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the enemy. So the Sadducees try to trick him, totally, totally just fumble that, just it fails. And so the Pharisees like, we got this. And so the Pharisees go in, like, we're going to bring in our big guns because we got a lawyer. And so that's what they did. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. By the way, if a lawyer asks you a question, does he really want to know the answer? No, he knows the answer. He's asking you a question because he's got a second question, right? In this situation, what Jesus does and says silences the second question, never gets to be asked. Take a look. Teacher, this is the question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? That's an easy one. Every rabbi knows the right answer to that. And Jesus gives him the right answer. But he does something afterwards so offensive that he silences him to the point where he doesn't ask the second question. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Awesome. He answered right. That's correct. So as the guy is taking his breath to, take, to ask the second question, the question that's supposed to trip Jesus up, this is what takes place. And the second is like it. Wait, what? The second? There is no second. There's one. There's one thing. It's like, love God. What, what defines your world? Loving God. There's no second. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. When we look at that passage, we see something really cool of what's taking place. Jesus is asked one question, and he gives two answers by fusing two Old Testament passages. The first one, that first right answer, comes from Deuteronomy 6.5. The answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, is, is basically answering this. What is your epicenter? Like, what is it that you choose to filter every decision off of? Like, what is everything revolving around? And, and the right answer to anyone who's religious is God. God is the filter. He's the one. Like, my love for God is what impacts everything. It's what dictates everything. Everything rises and falls on my love for God. But Jesus said, and the filter that I choose to filter everything by is love for God and the second one is just like it. Not second in, in order, just sequentially. The second in similar, like exact opposite importance. Not only is it love for God, but it is love. And then he, he quotes from Leviticus, Leviticus 19.8. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The first one they had no problem with. This is vertical. I, I, I'm, I'm a religious person. I've got a relationship with God. The second one was more like, yeah, but for extra credit, love people around you, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus said, no, 
You can't have one without the other. In fact, the whole Old Testament, all the law and all the prophets, that's shorthand for the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Testament hangs on one nail, not two. And the one nail is love God and love others. And that is the definition of it all. Paul, who did not like Jesus, who was not a fan of Jesus until Jesus meets with him, and all of a sudden, Paul goes from hating Christians, hating Jesus, to being on team Jesus. He all of a sudden, being a person who loves the law, gets on the same page. He says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. I'd look on your faces, it has zero value with this audience either. We're like, what? It doesn't, I don't even get it. What's the big deal? And it's, that's true, because for us it's not a big deal. But for a first century religious Jew... Big deal. Circumcision was how you made sure every male was basically making the outward surgical statement, I'm on team God. I love God with all my heart, my soul, my body. I am on team God. Paul is saying, I, I bought that for my whole life. But when Jesus came and he died on the cross, he did something that satisfied the whole Old Testament law and set us up for, to look at all of that as unnecessary anymore. It doesn't count. You want to know what does? This. The only thing that counts the only, Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith, that vertical relationship, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, expressing itself through what? What? The only thing that counts is not faith. And that messes with a lot of us, especially if you grew up super religious, because the answer is faith is the most important thing. And Jesus said, not if it's not accompanied by love for one another. And this got Jesus in major, major, major trouble because it inevitably gravitated into political issues. You can't actually talk about loving people if you're going to talk about loving all people with this agape love, which is uh, you can't merit it, you can't earn it, you can't pay it back kind of love. It's just loving because I love you, even if you don't love me back. You can't do that without starting to let, ask the question, well, who is inside of that boundary? Who am I supposed to love and who is it okay for me not to? And so Jesus kept on dropping stories after story that would just dismantle their, their parameters on who's okay to love and who's not. He actually was advocating for love that went against their ethnic norm of who is okay to love, like, racially. He was advocating for love that was going against actually loving um, national enemies of, 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 this, of Israel. Over and over again, Jesus keeps on pushing their buttons, and people are trying to figure out where Jesus is. Are you conservative or are you liberal? Are, are you on the right or are you, are you on the left? And Jesus is like, I'm Jesus. They're like, no, that's not answering my question because you're frustrating these guys and these guys are cheering and then the next thing you say frustrates them and makes these guys love you. What is up with you? I love how Tony Evans put it. He said, Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. I'm so glad that they got that all buttoned up in the first century. We don't have to even worry about this stuff anymore. How? How do you process? How do you, how, do, how do you think through political issues? Now, if you're like any of us, the natural and normative thing is to, to take a page from whatever tribe you belong to. And for Christians, or, and non-Christians alike in America, if you, basically you have 330 million people that find these two to neatly and perfectly fit their perspective. I don't care which you are, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, I don't care what you check, I don't care if, you're, if you don't affiliate with either one. I don't think God does either. But I will say this, the thing that's so funky is that we have, and this is something that just boggles my mind the older I get, 330 million people, and we expect that they're all going to neatly fit into two categories, R or D. 
And the weird thing is, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> and the weird thing is, is that we would think, we think that I, you know what, it's like my identity is there. I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. And we make it like it's our mama. It's like if someone starts talking against our political affiliation, it's like, you, are you serious? You wanna, do you want to fight right now? Let's go right in the parking lot. You're talking, because we're, we're treating Republicans or Democrats like you're talking about my mom. Don't you dare talk about my mom. I love my mom and everything about my mom. Don't you talk about my mom. Jesus does something in the first century that dismantles the very thing that we, we have still holding on to in 2020. He says, this has got to come first. The cross has to come before the R or the D. And, and the cool thing is this. It frees you up to do something. If the cross comes before your party affiliation, you are freed up to, number one, critique your own party. If you're a Democrat, you could say, I absolutely love this, this, and this about my party, and I do not like this and this and this. And you could say that without any fear of, like, betraying your party because it's not your mama. It's just your political party, right? And you could also do this. Is if you're a Republican, you can actually not only do that, you can not only critique your own party, but you can actually look at the other side as not a bunch of demons. You don't demonize them because you're like, I don't get them. I don't understand that. But you know what? These guys are not all just complete morons. And you could say that without feeling, I'm betraying my Republican Party. Why? Because your identity isn't rooted in your Republicanism or your Democratism. Your, your, your identity is rooted in Jesus. Amen? I say amen now, but just wait for the rest of the sermon. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> the thing that I just, we, we got to come back to is this. Um, that love for God, that kingdom that Jesus was, was calling us to, to have, where we love God and we love others, and these are married together. It is not natural. It is not normative. And whether you're a Democrat or Republican, a socialist or an anarchist, whatever you are, that doesn't come natural to you. I wrote this, love God and love his image bearers, defies the typical boundaries we place around race, religion, or sexual orientation. It defies every political party and the platform they run on. It convicts and challenges all of us. No single person ever looks at the great commandment, love God and love others, and says, that's the natural thing for me to do. Every thinking person is checked by it. Every thinking person is offended by it. And if obeyed, is transformed by it. See, for Jesus' kingdom of love to succeed, man, we got to make sure that we get this right. The cross has to come before the R and the D. So what we're going to do is this. This year, you're going to be, you're going to experience multiple commercials and multiple debates where Republicans and Democrats are going to be talking about a myriad of issues. I want to hone in on three of those issues that are political hand grenades that, again, every commercial and every debate is going to surface. But we want to do it through a different lens a lens that's really aiming to try to love God and love others and to let the cross come before our party. And th this is the lens that we're going to look through each of these three issues on. We're going to look at each issue through the lens of truth. What are the facts about this? I need to have informed information. What are the facts about this subject? And then empathy. This is a step that we don't often take. How does someone on the opposite side of this argument get there? I don't agree with them, but how is it that they're there and empathize with them? And then action. As someone who's not called just to be apathetic, but called to actually step into the world that I'm, I'm living in, what action can I take? I care, honestly, this morning, I care less about telling you what to believe and, and rather teaching you how to think. 
I rather would like us to think through the lens of Christ's greatest commandment. And I'm going to give you three examples of how to do that, but we got to expand that out. And you're going to be on your own. But let these three things be the filter on whatever issue you're coursing through, whether it's political or otherwise. So let's deal with the first one, which is incredibly sensitive, and that's abortion. In 1973, um, after Roe v.ersus Wade, abortion became legalized in our country. And since 1973, up to this last year, there was just under 62 million uh, births that were terminated, that were aborted. Um, of the demographical span of that, over half of the, the children, the unborn children that were aborted um, were children of color that, versus the white children. Um, actually, African-American children were five times more likely to be aborted than white children. And, and of the decisions of, of the rationale of why, when we're trying to find out truth, we, we, it's important for us to have stats. And one of the things that we hear in debates is that, that, that honestly, I think any thinking person can empathize with is that, you know what, sometimes th that births come by, by some type of incestuous relationship or rape or, or the mother's, like, life is on, on the line, and that, that becomes a very compelling notion. The one thing we do have in 2020 is the ability to look over, and because this is a health care issue, it is something that we have stats on. In 2018, uh, Florida posted um, the stats of, of why, and, and surprising, and this surprised me, that as far as the amount of rapes and incest and the uh, safety of the mother that, that led in 2018 to the overall amount of abor abortions that they had, it added up to less than 1%. And actually, 95% um, or more were actually more in the, in the realm that fell into a situation of crisis with the individual saying, I am not ready for this. I can't handle this. This is going to destroy everything in my world. This is not the right time. This is not the right person. You don't understand my parents. This is going to absolutely dismantle everything. And that far lands into what it is. Now, that's not a big deal unless the crux of the issue is true or not. Actually, the crux of the issue is something that Bernie Sanders tweeted about this past year, or the past week, um, when he talked uh, right around Roe versus Wade's anniversary, when he said that abortion is health care, which, depending on whether or not the crux of the issue is answered, he could be absolutely right, or he could be radically wrong. I th um, my son, Micah, um, shared with me a tweet later, uh, earlier last year um, that I feel really consolidates down the issue at hand. And the fact that as Christians or non-Christians, pro-choice, pro-life, we talk past each other when we're using these terms of pro-choice, pro-life, and even some of the ways that we talk about it. Um, this person on Twitter put it this way. The problem with, quote, the, the terms pro-choice versus pro-life is that they're arguing two completely different things. The positions are not drawn from the same set of facts. You either believe a fetus is a human being or it isn't, and that's the crux. You either believe a fetus is a human being or it isn't. Pro-life isn't saying a woman isn't allowed to decide what to do with her body any more than pro-choice is saying people should be allowed to murder babies. What is actually being said is I don't believe a fetus is a living child and therefore it's part of a woman's body and she should have the right to decide what she does. And on the opposite side, the other position is conception produces a living human being and, and abortion is no different than smothering your baby you no longer want. He wraps it up by saying this, it's kind of hard to find a middle ground when the middle ground is, I think a fetus is a living baby, but I'm cool with murder anyway. Or, I don't believe a fetus is a living thing, I just don't think women should have rights. And this 
ability for us to talk past each other is what led to things like uh, the in interaction between Chris Cuomo and Eric Metaxas. On CNN, uh, Chris, Chris Cuomo, he, he's a fan of Eric Metaxas. He has them on quite a bit. Eric Metaxas is a, a Christian writer. He wrote an amazing book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Phenomenal. Ginormous, but phenomenal. And so they were talking, and, and this is right after um, Christianity Today um, called President Trump out. And, uh, and, and yet Eric Metaxas continued to support him. Chris Cuomo said, Eric, I don't understand how it is that you as a Christian, an evangelical Christian, support so solidly someone who so consistently betrays the teachings of Jesus. Now, Eric Metaxas could have answered that. He didn't. I felt like he cowardly ducked that question. But he, he put a question back in Chris Cuomo's corner by saying this. Eric, you tell me, or Chris, you tell me. You are a Catholic. How is it you advocate for abortion rights? And then all of a sudden, back and forth, and that happened for a couple minutes until Chris Cuomo gets to the end of it and says this. Eric, here's the thing. I wish more evangelical Christians would stop fighting and talking past each other the way that we're doing right now. And I wish that they would focus on this one thing. This one thing is this. What does science say? Like, when does a life actually start? And that is a very, very, Chris is right on the money. And actually, as far as life, and, and that, I mean, it's, it's, it, that's incredibly complicated. And lots of people have different perspectives on it. But one of the things that was driving abortion, um, at least abortion rights from 73 on, was initially the, the thought was unborn fetuses cannot feel pain. But we got deeper into science. As we got deeper into science, we started realizing that that's not the case. Unborn fetuses cannot feel pain until 24 weeks. Actually, after 24 weeks, they can. Last month, a study came out of England that said unborn fetuses cannot feel pain, or can feel pain, at 13 weeks, and possibly earlier. This controversial finding came from uh, Professor Derbyshire, who's a pro-choice consultant for the UK and Planned Parenthood America consultant. He's pro-choice. Back in 2006, he said that abortion doctors, it was completely okay not to tell mothers that the, the unborn fetus could feel pain in the procedure because it's, it's practically off the grid. It's not on the radar at all, so it's not even worth mentioning. This past month, he has flipped his findings and said it's unconscionable not to tell mothers that this fetus feels. Now, that, that's the facts. But when we get into the empathy side of it, we're asking the question uh, like the following. Um, this is something that... For people who have been pro-choice or pro-life, it's been something we've really had to dig into and try to investigate what do we really believe. Um, uh, famous uh, feminist and uh, University of Arts at, at, in Philadelphia, um, Camille Paglia, uh, put it this way. She said recently, although I'm an atheist who worships only great nature, I recognize the superior moral beauty of religious doctrine that defends the sanctity of life. The violence intrinsic to abortion cannot be wished away by magical thinking. She's as far left as you're going to find, and she is far from being a Christian, but her perspective is why she, her, she has looked at the issue of abortion and has cited on the side of this is actual life, and she finds it cowardly to even framework the phrases of pro-life versus pro-choice. She said pro-choice is cowardly. We need to call it what it is. Now, you may be someone who, who honestly, has, that's kind of you. you you've, maybe you, at some point um, you were more in the, the pro-choice um, category. I was talking with an awesome lady last service who said, I, that's kind of still where I'm at. I'm still wrestling with this. And so you might be someone that's really wrestling with this whole notion. You may have been, been one of the women in our church who's had an abortion. We've had, and many, many women in our church have had abortion. We've had a chance to counsel, talk, 
Love these ladies walking through this stage of life, realizing the, the difficulty that it still is for them. But you might be someone that is veering in the direction of saying, I believe science is informing me this is life. It feels, it has a heartbeat, it's breathing. This is not an it, but it's a, it's a, it's a person. And I'm more on the side of defending life, but I can't empathize with these one-issue-voting right-wing Republicans. Like, seriously, they're so stinking tunnel vision. It's like, I don't care if your candidate is garbage, if they're pro-life, woo, they got my vote. And I just don't understand these people. Why are they so stinking, so tunnel-visioned on this? And for, to help you empathize with them, this is one thing that might be helpful. Um, if you had a candidate, and your candidate was just perfect, like amazing, like everything you believe, they believe. Everything that you're for, they're for. Everything you're against, they're against. The perfect candidate. Newsflash, that will not happen in 2020, but just let's go fantasy land on that, okay? Let's just pretend. They're everything you want. And then all of a sudden, they're on Chris Cuomo's show, and, and they're being interviewed, and Chris says, you know, I, I just, you know you've got this very compelling platform. What, what is your stance on domestic abuse? That's an issue, a really horrible issue in our country. And this candidate, the candidate you love, the candidate you, you've, you've actually, you've not, you haven't been political at all in your life, but now you're putting actual signs in your yard. You're that political. And your candidate says, well, Chris, here, it's kind of, it's complicated. The thing is this, um, there are times where I find it's appropriate to show my wife a little bit of force just to make sure she understands what I'm saying. Excuse me, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. Can you, can you clarify? Well, what I'm saying is that sometimes if she gets out of line, I'm not saying all the time, and I'm not, it's certainly, it's nuanced, it's, it's not for everyone, I understand that, but there's certain situations where I just need to show a little bit of force just to get my point across. You know what I mean? <laughs> Would you vote for that person? And if you wouldn't, you've just become a single-issue voter. One issue was enough to disqualify because of the abuse that this person was willing to be okay with. And so that might be something that's helpful to understand that those on the other side are just super narrow-minded about this. That's enough of an issue because as terrible as domestic abuse is, and it is awful, no, no way around it how awful it is. If this is life and it's taking life, you could then empathize with why they would be so narrow-minded with such one issue when something is able to disqualify your vote. Now let's go on the other side of it. Let's say you're pro-life for life. You've marched in the marches. You're like, woo-hoo, doesn't matter. This could be, they could be garbage as long as they're pro-life, I'm there. And you're like, I don't understand why in the world this person over here would be okay advocating for rights to take lives. That just, I can't even understand that. I would never, ever take a life. I can't, that, that is unconscionable to me. One way for you to possibly empathize with them is to realize that perhaps the reason that you can't possibly empathize or understanding what they're going through is you've never been there. That every woman in that situation is in a moment of crisis. And we oftentimes make choices that have difficult staying power when we're in a moment of crisis. We can also empathize with the fact that um, even though you might not be able to relate to abortion as taking a life, most of us have heard about different people who have taken lives in different forms, whether it was part of their job or their military duty or in a moment of passion because of this, this, and this happened. We said, I would never do that, but I can understand why I could, I could see how that could happen. 
And so we could understand the idea of taking life, even if it was something you wouldn't do. I can't relate to it. I'm not saying I would do it. We could empathize with, in that situation, given the right circumstances, you might even be willing to take that step. When we empathize, we're simply saying, I may never do this. I still think it's wrong. But I'm coming alongside trying to understand where you're coming from. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks, I had a friend, um, I asked him if I could share this, and he said it was okay. Um, when he was in his early 20s, he and his girlfriend, both Christians, both pro-life for life, like hardcore pro-life for life, um, they started fooling around, and she got, she got pregnant. And he said, Errol, I've always been pro-life, and I don't think we would have ever followed through with an abortion, but for the first time in my life, I understood how with every variable that we had and all the paths that we had ahead of us, this seemed like the easiest, not the easiest, but this seemed like the simplest way out with all the other options available, how this was going to blow up our world. Empathize. And then, once you have the truth and you're able to come alongside with the other person's believing or thinking, then you take action. If it's life, then we have from Genesis this reality that God has given us um, the image of God. And, and that, that, that means that wherever we find life, as a Christian, we're an ally for human life wherever it is found. No matter if, it, if it's a different ethnicity, no matter if it has handicaps that we can't have, not, not only if it, it can't function in society without assistance, no matter if it's, it's it, regardless of its gender, we are an advocate for human life wherever it's found. This is a civil rights issue for a Christian. A Christian says, I want to support female rights, but I don't want to stop where our, our society does. I want to continue female rights even further and extend it to the females that are yet to be born and the males that are yet to be born. As a Christian, be an ally for human life wherever it's found, but don't stop there. Additionally, be the hopeful second thought for a pregnant woman in crisis. The first thought a pregnant woman in crisis has is, oh no, oh no. This is, this is going to destroy everything. This, I, I'm not ready for this. He's not the right person. Oh, no. That's the first thought. What if, what if the hopeful second thought was, I'm not ready for this, but thank God for the Christians. Thank God that there is a community of people who love God so much that they're loving other people so much that I know I'm not going to be judged. I know that they're going to come alongside me and they're going to help me out. They're going to support me. They're going to, they're going to walk me through this. Even if my parents kick me out, they're going to be there. Whether I keep my baby or I adopt my baby, they're going to walk alongside me. Thank God for the Christians. What if our society had that perspective? Now, as a church, we're trying to take steps in that. We have, um, we have uh, pregnancy resource centers that we have people in our church that work at. Whenever we give in our offering, one of the, the missionaries that we support is under his wings over in Ottawa that, that, that is aiming to say for the girls that get kicked out of their home. Their parents are like, we will have nothing to do with you. Under his wings says, we will have everything to do with you. We will be there with you through the pregnancy. We'll be with you when you have the, the child. And we're going to actually walk you through mentoring how to be a mom. Be the hopeful second thought a pregnant woman in crisis has. Now, this might not fit perfectly, neatly into your political party. That's okay. For Christ's kingdom of, kingdom of love to succeed, the cross must, must come before the R and the D. Now that we're all on the same page, let's move to something easy. <laughs> Immigration. Okay, here's the truth. Immigration. 
uh, just by the stats, we have about 12 million, approximately 12 million unlawfully entered individuals in our country. Um, they come from everywhere, but a majority of them come from Mexico, although the Mexican um, population that's coming into the country um, is starting to go down, and it's starting to be superseded by, um, by actually people from a bunch of different countries. Oh, one thing I forgot to say about abortion that's really fascinating. From 1973 to 1990, it was increasing, 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 increasing. From 1990 on till today, it has gone on the decrease. Regardless of who's been in the office, the White, off, White House, it has gone down, which surprisingly, and, and I think encouragingly so, you'll have Republicans and Democrats saying that that's a good thing. That is a good thing. And I think part of that is possibly that Christians are starting to take serious things like adoption and, and resourcing coming along. So I hope that's the reason. But regardless, we have room to go with that. With regard to, to, to immigration, hold on one second here. We have a majority of people coming in from Mexico, but we have folks coming from a lot of different countries, and here are a couple of them. Uh, the top 15 are from Mexico to Canada, and um, our, our government has communicated that some of these countries are not really desirable to come into our country, in part because of the, the risk of terrorism or perhaps even crime that they would uh, commit. One of the things that's interesting, however, though, is that when we look at the people that are actually deported, once they're caught and deported for committing crimes, 86.57, their primary crime is coming into the country unlawfully. So they, they came in illegally, they broke the law, and that's why they're sent out. The amount that um, um, were kicked out because of aggravated felony is 1.76%. And in 2017, there was zero incidents that were even on the radar of terrorism. And, and so just to make sure that we're operating with truth, we need to understand that those who are coming into our country primarily are coming into our country, breaking the law by coming into our country, not coming here and setting the world on fire. Now, as far as empathy is concerned, you might be someone that said, listen, borders are stupid and they're not Christian. It'd be better for us to have everyone come into our country so that we can better love them. For crying out loud, we're sending people on missions trips to the countries that we're trying to kick out of our own country. Why don't we just have a more open arm? And I don't understand these right-wing people that seem to be so like xenophobic, racist, bigoted, build a wall. What, what's up with that? To empathize with them, if that's your, where you are and you're just having a hard time understanding, empathize with them by looking at it the way that you would look at your front door. You, more than likely, lock your front door. Not because you're a jerk, not because you're a monster, not because you're a racist or a xenophobe, but because it's safe. You're protecting your space and your property from whoever's on the outside. And you're not, like, totally against having people over, even people that you're just getting to know, but you kind of want to have a filtering process first. Like, I need to know if this person is dangerous or should be around my kids. Again, that doesn't make you a xenophobe or a bigot. It makes you just... Actually, just kind of common sense. The people that I know that are on, hardcore on this side are not all xenophobes. Some of them are, not all of them. They're not all racists. Some of them are, but not all of them. The thing that I've seen most of them use as the example is the, the example of that. The best way to maybe try to understand and come alongside their thinking is to think about it the way you would think about your front door. And what these folks would say over here is that we, we really... Again, we need to have a country that's safe and secure so we know who's coming in and out and protecting the resources we have, and, and that's, that's important. Now, let's say that you're a big Trump building, Trump building, wall building, whatever, wall building, let's just stay with wall building. You're a big wall person. You're like, yes, we need strong borders. For crying out loud, Romans 13, it says that, that we should obey the government. We have laws. We can't be anarchists. We can't let just have open borders. That's ridiculous. 
this is, so, this is such a cut and dry issue, and I do not understand how someone could possibly be on the other side of this situation. For you, I would encourage you to think about it through the lens that they have. They're recognizing that when Jesus talks about whatever you do to the least of these, like when you invite the stranger in, you're doing that to him. When you visit someone in prison, you're doing that for him. When you're feeding the hungry, you're doing that for him. And Jesus got beyond the borders of Israel when he was encouraging people to think that way. Understand that the way that they're thinking is coming from the lens of that. Thinking through the lens of Jesus' greatest command, they're trying to flesh that out. They're also not persuaded by the idea that, that specifically with, with immigrants that have been brought into the country, we, we had 110,000 that we were allowing into the United States, and in the past couple of years, we dropped that to 50,000 because of the threat that, again, this is just going to be a drag on our economy and our culture. Um, the reality is that over the course of ten, a 10-year federal study between the years of 2005 and 2014, immigrants have net the country $63 billion with a B dollars. $63 billion. And so th there's something that works there. And, and so, so individuals over on this side are, are not compelled by some of the arguments that are being made here. So that's one way to help understand them. Once you empathize with them, we can kind of figure out what to take action on. Wouldn't we, that be great if we all agreed? I think we can. Let's do this. As a Christian, we need to build up America. We need to think of America as, as having a door that we want to have closed, that, we, that we're filtering in people in an organized fashion. We need to build up America. But this is very much like how Pastor Eric talked about last week with regard to our, our uh, giving. Um, he talked about the idea that God wants us to be generous, right? Does God want you to, be, does God want you to, to bless you so that you just get more and more wealthy? That you just have a bigger 401k, that you have a bigger retirement, so you have bigger, better things. Is that how, why God wants to bless you? No. Why does Scripture say that God blesses us? To be a blessing to others. And so that means that we orchestrate our finances as individuals. To, we try to manage our money well so that we have a better capacity to give. It's like God has blessed me, and so I'm going to make sure I'm more generous so I have a better capacity to give. Now, America is not a Christian. It's, not, it's a country. It's not a Christian. But what if, as Christians in America, we thought that way, and we said, let's think the same way of organizing where, where we have a vote, where we have a voice. Let's orchestrate ourselves in such a way that, as a Christian, we can build up America so that we can better bless those at the border. What if we built up our country? We, got, we had better finances, better jobs, better infrastructure, so that those who are in desperate situations, who are running away from socialist governments, Islamist governments, and dictatorships, governments that we agree are bad guys, and these people are on the boot of that, they're trying to get out of there, that we would actually be a better open door to them, bringing them in. We, we don't have, have to go on mission trips as much, because the people will be right here with us. What if we built up America so that we could better bless those on the border. Now, that may not fit into your political category all that neatly, but for the Christ kingdom of love to succeed, the cross, the cross must come before the R and the D. You see why it's hard to say amen? All right, environmentalism. Environmentalism. Let's just go to the easiest part that we all agree on with regard to environmentalism, human-driven climate change. We all agree on that, right? Yeah. <laughs> no way. And the reason is, is because of this. And this is actually, um, let's just go ahead and put some truth stats up here. The ocean, and this is, I'm going to just dumb this down because we can give like all the figures, but just to dumb it down, ocean temps are up, air temp is up, carbon emissions are up, reactive nitrogen and water pollution is up and impacting the nitrogen cycle. The question is, is not whether or not these things are happening or not. They are happening. The question is, do the bottom two affect the top two? Are the bottom two, the things that we understand are human causes, human pollution, et cetera, are those actually affecting 
the top, too. Now, in the empathy department, you might be an environmentalist that does not get people who are anti-environmentalism or, anti, or, or, or climate change deniers, etc. To empathize with them, I would encourage you to think of it this way. They have had, over the past uh, like 15 years, if not more, um, a lot of stuff fed to them. And their, their response is, is this even true? And if it is true, am I even responsible? Is this true? Because I don't know if it is. Because I keep on hearing all these facts from scientists, and then all of a sudden, I don't know if they pan out. Like Al Gore said that we had 10 years, that if we didn't take radical change, the whole world was going to be beyond the point of no return. And he said that 10-year doomsday promise in 2006. Dum, dum, dum. We're already four years beyond that. We've had people like philosopher Thomas May who, say, who argue for the environment by saying that the world would be so much better if, world, if human beings went extinct. And so understand that people on this side have a hard time digesting some of the things that are brought because, again, is this going to change in a couple years? How do I know this is not just part of the world cycle? How do I know that any, if any things are true? And if they are true, if the world's temps are going up and all these things are happening, how do you know it's man-made? How do you know it's my fault and my responsibility to do anything about it? You're not the boss of me. Okay? Now, if you're someone who's not a huge environmentalist and your friends know it, and you're looking at these environmentalist wackos, and you're just like, see, these guys are just, they're just like neo-hippies. Like, just, they, they're just looking for a cause, and they, they, they can't find God, and they can't find religion, so their religion is the world. Understand that a lot of the people over on this side that are believers, followers of Jesus, their perspective is this. How can we not take action to protect God's gift to humanity? Like, like I don't, you've, if you're an aunt, an uncle, a parent, grandparent, a sibling, you've bought a present for someone at some point, and you watched the kid unwrap the present, and they unwrapped it, and it was broken within five minutes, and they moved on to the next area of destruction. You're like, this is the last time. I will never buy this spoiled little brat another toy, Right? Because you gave this gift at great cost to you and they abused it. People on this side of the aisle are looking at, or on this side of the argument are looking at you and saying, you, you call yourself a Christian. You say that you love God and yet you're taking the greatest, most costly gift uh, that is a physical gift that we can walk on and you're abusing it like it doesn't matter. And you, you don't even care. Now, the solution is so diverse it's, it's all over the place, but I want to just want to encourage you with this. Don't think about saving the world or changing the world or stopping man-made climate change. Actually, the proponents of, of trying to end man-made climate change are, would say the same thing that I'm saying to you right here, which is simply this. Think through the lens of local. Th think through the lens of local. Um, there are things that you could do locally that are eco-friendly, that are the very same things that these guys are advocating to stop man-made climate change that you would agree and I would agree are good things, things that improve the quality of water, the quality of air. Domingo and I, we grew up in Southern California, and in Southern California, in the, I've said this before, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was, I mean, you knew you were in L.A. because you could taste the air. It was bad. We watched the, the, we watched the news in the morning not to see if the weather was, what the weather was going to be, if it was going to be a snow day, because that didn't happen in Torrance, California. You just were seeing, is it going to be 74 degrees or 75? And that was it. The reason that you watched the weather as a kid was to see the air quality alert. The air quality alert was going to say what, whether or not it was going to, like, what the quality of air was going to be, and we were always hoping for an orange or a red, and it often was. Orange or red meant that it was, that you would be able to get out of PE, because it's too unsafe outside with the air quality to run and play outside. That was my upbringing, and that wasn't the environment's fault. That was man-made, right? 
And so the state comes in, and the EPA comes in, these people that we can't stand, and they start to dictate and get everyone's business. Like, you've got to, like, control your, the smog in your car, and you've got to control the smog in your factories. These were costly decisions that got up and in everyone's grill, and all of a sudden people started making changes, and, and now you go there now, and there's still tons of people, and there's smog, but the air quality is so much significantly better. It's amazing. That's a Christian issue. And honestly, that, that changed me because that made me think about things like the EPA differently because there's countries that don't have the EPA, like a country I just came back from, the country of India. India does not. They have all the freedom to do whatever they want. No one's getting in their business. They've got all the freedom to do it. And this is not a blessing to their neighbor. This is not appreciating the, the gift that God has given them. So the, the thing that we need to be leaning in on, if we want to take action as Christian, is to think locally. As a Christian, localize your environmentally responsible decisions out of sacrificial love for the good of your neighbors. Will that make an impact on the, the, on the overall climate? Maybe, who knows? But I can tell you one thing, it's going to make an impact on your neighbors. If you're using less, wasting less, throwing away less, recycling more, taking care of your vehicles. If you work in an industry, you're making sure that you're doing things clean and green. That doesn't make you a wacko. It makes you a, makes you a Christian who loves God and loves other people. What if we stepped into it that way? And that, again, may not fit. Your, your friends might think that you're a dork. You might not be invited to any of your political rallies. But the cool thing is that for Christ's kingdom of love to succeed, the cross must come before, must come before the R and the D. Let me just close with this. Um, Jesus really, he, he just continued to be offensive in his statements to people. And the thing that was so phenomenal about what he did in Matthew 5 was this. He said, you know, if a Roman centurion comes into your midst and tells you to carry a load of, of, of bags and burdens for him a mile, go the extra mile. You ever heard the term go the extra mile? It came from Jesus. And what Jesus was describing was a racist scenario that took place in the first century where the occupying country of Rome would tell these Jewish people, Jew, you come here, pick this up and carry it. And literally, it wasn't a mile, it was a thousand paces. So carry this a thousand paces for me. And everyone's gut reaction was, I just want to slug that person. I can't wait till they just, I, whatever we could do to get them out of our country, whatever we could do to, to stop this oppression, Jesus said, for that guy, instead of doing one mile, do two. Now, if I was there, I would say, why? What difference is that going to make? Is that going to stop Rome from occupying us? Is that going to make Israel great again? I don't think so, Jesus. This is not something that we should be all about. Now, we don't have any recorded responses, so there were no arrows in the, in the audience, but at least you've got to think someone was asking the question, Why? What difference is this going to make? I think Jesus was trying to tell him, you're doing this because you are my child. I have given you love. Unconditional, unpaybackable, unearned love. That's a gift to you. And I'm asking you to give that to everyone. And here's the crazy thing. They did it. Here's the second crazy thing. That movement of love did overthrow the Roman Empire. When it was legal, within, even encouraged in the Roman Empire to have a baby that you didn't want, it wasn't a convenient time, it had some type of handicap, or it was a girl, you could take that to the edge of the forest or the edge of the waterway, and you could walk away. It's called exposure. And you could just let the wild animals take it and walk away and not have to think about it ever again. It was an encouraged and legalized practice. 
Christians who are followers of Jesus ran those edges of those forests and those waterways, and they would pick up these kids, and they didn't have the money, they didn't have the resources to add another kid to the, to the kitchen table, but they did. They brought these kids in. Where was the Bible verse telling them to do that? It wasn't there. Just the command that Jesus said was the greatest one. Your faith in God is fleshed out towards your radical love for one another. And church, this world does not need better Republicans. It doesn't need better Democrats. It doesn't need better socialists. It needs better Christians. You take that command seriously and consider it great. When we need a picture of what that looks like, we come to communion. This is a picture of Jesus showing love for God so that he could love all of us. Obedient to God the Father to extend that forgiveness to you and I. If you're a follower of Jesus, this table is for you. We want to encourage you to exit your rows on the left side, go around both sides of the table, take the bread and the cup, and bring it back and have some moment of contemplation before we take the elements together. Do so now.